one. All right. Welcome to episode number seven of Esoteric Artifacts. I've got Jared Rivera, a doctor, here um, in studio today. Glenn is still getting settled in at his new place um, in Maryland. He is going to be working for a quantum computing firm, uh, like we mentioned last episode. Um, so we're still working out the setup uh, to be able to do uh, our next episode with Glenn, but um, thankfully, uh, Jared here was able to uh, come talk to us today. And we're going to be talking about some of the problems in the healthcare industry, of which <laughs> this is definitely <laughs> a, a big discussion, but we're going to try and cover like some of the core aspects of what is the biggest disincentives and uh, problems within healthcare from the perspective of a physician uh, that we have in the current environment that we operate in. Um, Jared is a third year resident. Um, just as a disclaimer, uh, he is here speaking his own opinions. He is not uh, speaking on behalf of any employer or any organization. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, thanks for having me. So the first, like, where, where to start in this subject? <laughs> it's, oh, man. It's, it's definitely a big one. But I think uh, the Affordable Care Act is probably a decent starting point because mm. that's the environment that most people at least operate in right now. If you are between the ages of, you know, that you have just been born to 65, um, barring, you know, low-income people that are on Medicaid. Um, and we can talk about Medicare and Medicaid as well, mm. but the Affordable Care Act, and um, we've been in this environment for, uh, you know, over a decade now. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, how long has it been? It's been, has it been? Oh, 2016, I think is when it, like when it, 2010 is when they yeah, voted on yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. 2016. Yeah, so 12 years now. Yeah. We've been in this environment that was created by the rule, and it was it was the most drastic uh, modifications to healthcare legislation mm -hmm. that had been done in quite a long time. This country, everybody knows that the uh, that our 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 costs are astronomical mm -hmm. compared to any other countries, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, and the Affordable Care Act really did not alleviate any of those uh, mm -hmm. concerns. Yeah, I mean, it was it was interesting that um, going in, like going into medicine, um, it's been about well, like med school was about eight years ago for me. Going into it, like we had heard about it, and we we thought like, oh, this is like the answer. This is you know, this is like everyone talked about it. Like this is the bet, the next best thing. And um, coming into it as a as the actual provider now, it's it's kind of different. It's it's not what we thought it would be. So there's, there's pros and cons to everything. And, um, I think that, um, overall, <laughs> overall it, it, it didn't meet up to the standards that it was expected to be. Yeah. There was definitely a lot of promises mm -hmm. that were made and this is kind of the case with any legislation, but healthcare is such a sensitive subject because it's not just yourself that you're concerned about. It's your family members, your loved mm -hmm. ones, you know, your spouse, your, your parents, your children, um, all, all of those people are affected by how healthcare is conducted and people of course want the best that they can get. And, mm. um, this country was widely known for many decades to have the, uh, the, 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 we were at the cutting edge of every medical development, you know, pharmaceutical from pharmaceutical drugs to innovations within surgery. This country has always been at the forefront. And 
obviously that's not just been done by the private sector. That's been a lot of that has been do- uh, done by public sector research and, you know, universities um, and Europe and uh, Canada and other uh, countries that don't have the exorbitant costs that we have also have a lot of those benefits, but many of those benefits are passed down from us specifically, mm-hmm. especially uh, in the area of pharmaceuticals. But I wanted to ask you, uh, has how, how much has your perspective shifted as you've become more and more immersed in within your industry and you've seen firsthand so much from working in hospitals mm-hmm. for years as a, a and and you i know interact with these systems a little bit more than perhaps some physicians do be, out of concern for your patients i know we've had many conversations off camera about you know at you advocating for a certain thing for a mm-hmm. patient because knowing that they need it but you've been denied by billing by insurance yeah so to start, like at, like as a resident, we're still in training, so we are we're, we're given a little bit more freedom into how much time we can spend with our patients, uh, what we want to do. Um, so this might not apply to all physicians, but um, just from the three years of training that we've done, um, you can see the, the 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 shift that comes from year to year. So from First year, you get to start with an hour with the patient. Second year, you you go down to 40 minutes. Um, and the second half of second year, you go down to 30 minutes. And then third year, you go down to 20 minutes with the patient. And that's actually like more time than most physicians spend with their patients. Uh, once you're actually done with training, you're lucky to spend 15 minutes with the patient. And part of the reason for that is like there's so much need like you're getting paid per you're getting paid for um the volume that you're you're getting so if you are working in your own private practice you are getting paid based on the amount of patients you see in a day so 15 minutes with a patient is going to pay you much better than even 20 or 30 minutes with a patient and for you to sit there and like talk to someone and, and start from scratch and tell them, hey, like this is how we can improve your lifestyle in 15 minutes, it, it, it does not happen. Yeah, it's a real challenge. And this is why, you know, nurses are perhaps more so on the forefront of a lot of these things than mm-hmm. physicians just because they are spending more face time with patients. But like you say, there's a financial incentive to not spend more time with patients. And it's become, it's come to such a point where it's not even financially viable for you to mm-hmm. sustain a private practice if you were trying to do it the right way and you wanted to spend 30 minutes with every single patient. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, um, the r- rate of a consult with a physician, uh, if you were to just you know schedule an appointment in a doctor's office in our region which is not the most expensive in the United States it, it definitely is higher in the west coast uh, on the east coast uh, cities but that rate kind of ranges from like if you were to pay for this cash out of pocket without insurance it's anywhere from like 115 to like 150 dollars for the mm-hmm. consult um most people you know if you have insurance through your employer or something you're probably paying like a 20 dollar copay or nothing at all so you don't you don't even think about this but um I, as somebody who's uh, lived without insurance for many years right now, you know, I just started a business six months ago. I, I, we do not have a group health plan mm-hmm. under our small sp- startup at this point yet. Um, if I go see a physician, I will pay out of pocket. And that rate, if you, if you think about those numbers, well, you have to have 
you know, compliance software, you have to have billing software, you mm -hmm. have to have accountants, you have to have legal resources, you have to have administrators, mm -hmm. you have to have nurses, and then you have to pay yourself. Mm -hmm. How are, is it possible to do that if you're going to be seeing two to four patients an hour? You yeah. just can't do it. Yeah, and that was and that was something that the um, ACA initiated was that um, you are not paid on you're basically paid on your patients like compliance. And, and so you can, really? you, you can have, yeah, you can have that first um, wellness, wellness visit, like paid for for free, which is great. But again, 15, 20 minutes, like how much time do you really have? And then from there, like you, you are, you're basically paid on how well your, your patients are doing. So you're given 15 minutes to tell them, you know, how, how to live healthily and then, you know, you push the meds on them. And then from there, it's like, it's all numbers. It's all, um, you know, what's their blood pressure? What's their A1C, uh, which is like a, a blood sugar measurement. And it's, and, and, that, and those are the things that they, they tried to say, like, we're going to pay you based on these metrics. And, and really that like, none of those really matter in the bigger scheme of like someone's health, because you start off with, you know, a, a wellness visit, which is paid for. And then how often is someone, is someone going to pay an extra hundred dollars to come to the, to, to see their doctor for their doctor to tell them, Hey, like, stop, stop eating this, stop doing this. Like no one wants to be there. So those people don't, don't continue to come. So, and then we're, and then we're paid based on, well, the, the company is is paid based on those numbers. It's all, it's all metrics. Like, that's what it's left up to. That's interesting. I was not aware that there was like metrics testing mm -hmm. for uh, like evaluations in terms of uh, insurance payouts. So you're telling me that like, say a pre-diabetic patient with, you know, fairly high A1C levels came in. Um, if you were like, so in, in that sense, are you incentivized because you know that it's going to be an uphill battle to get them to change their lifestyle and change their diet? Do you, are you then incentivized to, you know, give them a drug that would reduce their A1C levels in the short term, even though that may not actually solve their bigger problems of poor diet and lack of exercise or something yep. like that. A hundred percent. So that's one of the big, the big things that I have a problem with is even with, uh, even with bu like bundled service or uh, what's cap capitation is the other one. Yeah. Capitation. So a lot of these companies will say like, we're going to, we're going to, um, we're going to pay our physicians based on their metrics instead of, um, instead of like a time, a time frame, which is, that sounds great. They're using numbers. So, uh, w w like what he was saying was someone who's pre-diabetic. Um, so someone who has like started to develop an insulin, insulin resistance, or someone who is at a level where they are, um, their, their body's not processing the sugar the way that they should be. The easiest way to fix that is to throw insulin at them, right? Or, or you know, a diabetic medication. So um, you, you could do that and make those numbers look great. But th you know, the worst thing about, and, and something that I do not do or do not like to do is put someone on insulin because as soon as you put them on insulin, all they're going to do is gain weight. They're going to, they're going to gain more fat. And all you're going to do is, is perpetuate the problem. So you're, you're basically putting this, this bandage over, um, 
like a excessive like bleeding artery and and to think that like that's going to fix it the number looks great but guess what they're going to gain weight they're going to keep becoming more insulin resist resistant they're go the the problem is going to not get better but so that goes that that goes against like cap like capacitation yeah capitation um or all this like any anything that you put a number on you're you're actually not fixing the problem you're just you're fixing the number and and that's something that that bothers me that's interesting because that's kind of one of those things where this obsession with metrics mm -hmm. which we know don't always paint the full picture i mean we talk a lot on this show about how the numbers that you see within the economy for example don't actually display what's really happening in the economy because mm -hmm. to, you you have to take a more nuanced approach to be able to understand the bigger picture and it's the same thing when it comes to a person's health like you're saying is there is a lot more going on behind the scenes than just this one number that we're able to measure mm -hmm. especially i mean don't even get me started on on mental health where we're not able to quantify a lot of these numbers mm -hmm. like neurotransmitter levels and you know like it, we can't we can't assess some of those things in real time mm -hmm. and they vary so greatly um so that's really interesting so i yeah i had never turned that heard that term but apparently it's a capitation is a it's a payment arrangement for healthcare service providers that pays a set amount for each enrolled person assigned to them per period of time um whether or not the person seek, mm -hmm. is seeking care. And that's, and that's kind of what um, Affordable Care Act did. It was, it was trying to find a, uh, a balance between fee-for-service and, and capitation. Uh, mm -hmm. It was trying to find some kind of balance where they bundled like fee-for-service and said, like, we're going to pay you for seeing this person. But it, it, it doesn't always match up to like the, those numbers and like, you know, one person being sick you can't just like put that in a bundle, which, which that was the downfall. Like they, they tried well-intentioned, but you know. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting hearing some of this stuff for me because I am hearing it from a, uh, like coming from my insurance background, I was a Medicare agent for a little bit over a year. And um, I got to see some of the financial uh, side of interfacing with government and how, how these payments are uh, processed uh, by Medicare, which is a, you know, pretty solid insurer mm -hmm. in, in, in itself. This is why there's so much political will to expand the Medicare program to cover everybody. Um, but the reality was even when I was in Medicare was most patients that wanted actually high quality care did not just accept base Medicare. And then one of these um, free HMO plans that was provided by one of the insurance giants like Humana or like Anthem, um, the best care that you could receive was with a supplemental plan. Now there's plenty of problems with these supplemental plans mm -hmm. as well. They were not a perfect solution by any means, but they granted patients the freedom of choice essentially mm -hmm. to seek care in the way that they thought best. It, it, it allowed you more flexibility of options of not being constrained within a network and being, being able to go to the hospital you wanted, being able to uh, attain the operations uh, that your physician recommended without any, as, as many limitations. Mm -hmm. And, um, one thing that I think people are asking themselves, especially, you know, people that have been on these Affordable Care Act plans that were kicked off uh, their w whatever plan they were on uh, prior. And this is not some. this is part of the issue is that health insurance is indexed heavily to employment in this country. Mm. I, I don't think there's any other country in the world that has it, it 
indexed to employment so heavily, but there's heavy financial incentives for good employers anyway to provide that benefit to their employees. So most people, even most people that are listening to this right now probably have a group health plan that they, a portion of that premium is probably deducted from your paycheck. Mm -hmm. And, but ultimately the port, any portion of that premium that your employer is paying, that's tax deductible for them. Mm -hmm. So they're, it's, they're kind of incentivized to offer that as a benefit because rather than offering you more compensation, because any wages they're paying you, that's not tax deductible, Mm -hmm. but premiums paid is tax Mm -hmm. deductible. And then on the more extreme cases where you have like really good employers, like a company like Google, for example, they're paying the full cost of premium. Mm. Um, some manufacturing companies will do that as well. Actually, I worked for a, a factory that paid the full cost of premium, which would have costed me probably $120 out of pocket per week, mm. uh, which is ridiculous because I was, I think I was 27 at the time. Like yeah. the odds of me, you know, needing insurance for anything uh, yeah. other than barring catastrophic incidents is extremely low mm-hmm. uh, in, in that age range. And, um, yeah, Which is you, funny because that was part of the thing that they were trying that the, the Affordable Care Act was trying to show is like, oh, we're gonna save the patients their money, but like, yeah, premiums. W- yeah, and especially if you're if you're like upper middle class, I mean, you're getting shafted the mm-hmm. hardest by this. Uh, I I walked into households that were not quite on Medicare yet. You know, that was the thing as a Medicare agent. I spoke to a lot of people that were on these Affordable Care Act plans mm-hmm. because people who are 64 and getting ready to enroll in Medicare was you know, a lot of our prime uh, clients and those people would describe to me, uh, you know, so uh, uh, there was a guy who was making like around $150,000 a year uh, on a single income. Mm-hmm. Um, in our area, that's, that's very comfortable living. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's not making 150 K in New York city. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you can live quite comfortably on 150,000 uh, before taxes in this area. However, he was paying uh, $1,800 a month in premiums for uh, him, his wife, and two children. And I was like, that's insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, they, they had children late, so they still had two dependent children at that time when, when he was 64. And I could not imagine the idea of paying $1,800 a month. But the alternative to that is facing real risk of losing all your assets, you know, filing, filing medical bankruptcy in the event that something major yeah. bad does happen to you. Mm-hmm. Which, which still happens. Yeah, yeah, medical bankruptcy. I think maybe still one of the most common, it, if not the most common, form of bankruptcy in this country. Yeah, last time I checked, it was yeah. Um, yeah, and like and and going with that, it was. Um, I think right now it's about thirty, the cutoff for Medicaid. Of and of course they don't, you know, they don't put that on their website. But the you have to apply and see if you if you qualify. But I think it's about. Twenty to thirty thousand dollars a year is what qualifies you for Medicaid. So, Medicaid. so mo- most of our patients you're, are. You're, you're talking in terms of income. Yeah. So it, that is actually indexed to uh, federal poverty the, level. Yeah, the federal poverty. Like, so which. So it, it varies. Um, in California, it, I believe it's like it's like between three hundred and fifty and four hundred thousand uh, percent federal poverty level. Federal poverty level, I think, is. I thought it was a hundred to four hundred. Um. So. I'm going to check my numbers real quick on this. A federal poverty level, I can't remember if it's like around 12,000 or if it's around 16,000 these days. Which multiplied out? uh, Yeah, there's a a multiplier that's... I I haven't checked it in recent years, so I will just look it up. Um, 
the under the current guidelines um, for for a single person ha- mm-hmm. uh, family, household. Right, we're, we're talking. Obviously, this cha- the equation changes if you have a dependent spouse, mm-hmm. if you have children. But for an individual, federal poverty guideline is thirteen thousand dollars and five hundred ninety um, in the year twenty twenty two. So and you multiply that out by, yeah. So that gets it gets a uh, uh, Alaska is the only. Uh, only uh, only state that has mm-hmm. uh, completely different uh, federal poverty guidelines because it's strategically important territory to us and the cost of getting goods to Alaska is very, very expensive. Mm-hmm. They actually get paid a government stipend just for living in Alaska, <laughs> um, which is kind of funny. But yeah, so there's a, there's a multiplier. For some states, that multiplier might be like 100, 150% if it's like a lower cost of living state. Mm-hmm. If it's a higher cost of living state like California or New York, it's a much higher uh, multiplier okay. on that federal poverty level for, and that, that was one of the things that the Affordable Care Act actually did was it um, it allowed the states to expand certain benefits. And not all states did this, mind mm-hmm. you. Uh, yeah, you, you many states that were governed and uh, ha- that had uh, Republican majorities in the in the House and Senate and, mm-hmm. and uh, Republican governors refused outright to mm-hmm. expand uh, Medicaid because they didn't want to uh, create an incentive for more poverty, essentially. Mm-hmm in uh there in these states so how did those states do because when like while i was looking it up like i they were using texas as an example yeah and they were the number they were using was like the number of uninsured or the number of healthcare costs like whatever Mm -hmm. so how like have you seen anything different um i'm not sure exactly what what you mean like in terms of how did how did it like like how did it benefit the insured patient oh well so i don't know how how they assess yeah. whether like they, they will just look at those numbers at, in, in a simplistic form mm-hmm. like you're, we're talking about yeah, yeah. the problem Bureau, bureaucracies love these types of numbers mm-hmm. because they can say pre-aca there was 10 million yeah. people that were uninsured in this state yeah post-aca there was only 6 million people that were uninsured in the state so from that standpoint alone it looks like a success yeah but that doesn't paint the entire picture, yeah. right? Yeah, and again, I, I can only speak for Ohio. Like, I I've never practiced anywhere else. I'm I, I don't plan on. Well, maybe I'll I'll practice yeah. somewhere else. But um, again, like Ohio specifically, um, most of our patients as a as a resident in training, like you're you're only seeing, you're mostly seeing Medicaid, Medicare, yep, and um, and and actually a lot of uninsured too, and there's a lot of people that are making, you know, $30,000 a month or 35 and they don't qualify for Medicaid because they're, you know, they, they're taking care of their grandkids and whatever. Like there, there's so much crazy sh- shit that happens in <laughs> Southern Ohio that like you can't account for in, in, um, someone's salary. And it's not fair. Like, I, I don't, th- I, th- I think the people that really get screwed over are, between the that low class and that middle class and like just to say like affordable care should be for everyone like it really doesn't apply to everyone well man there's some really disheartening things that people have to do in order to qualify for medicare uh, medicaid sorry um i this is not commonly employed and obviously this is people in higher income situations but some sometimes these costs can be astronomical. You know, mm-hmm. if, you, if you talk about somebody, let's say somebody that um, is in their like maybe uh, 65, 70 years of age, somewhere in that range, mm-hmm. and they have, let's say they have 2 million in assets, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, let's say 
a five hundred thousand dollar house and one point five million sitting in there in between savings and retirement accounts. That's not you're not rich if you even if you're sitting on two million in assets. You by no means are you rich. Um, if you're you you even at that point at re, uh, if you retire at sixty five, you'll be lucky if you have anything more than your house left to give pass down to your children, and people that are in those situations and especially in that net worth range between uh, two and five million is where we saw this a lot. Um, because we had uh, we had elder care we we were partnered with elder care attorneys that would specialize in these types of things, and there is what's called a Medicaid trust. Um, what you can mm. do is you can lock your assets up in a trust and then tell Medicaid that you did this. Uh, you, you, you're basically telling them, hey, I, I locked up my assets in my trust, so my on paper, my assets are non-existent. I have nothing. And they'll tell you, okay, that's fine. You, are not, you will not be eligible for Medicaid for a period of, I think it's three years. Um, so for three years, under no circumstances, even though you technically meet the parameters for qualifying for Medicaid, you, you are not permitted to enroll. However, after that three-year period, so somebody with like early onset dementia or Alzheimer's yeah. uh, who knows that they're going to need ex very expensive years and years of long-term care. Alzheimer's is one of the worst ones because mm. uh, especially women um, who are just tend to live longer than men and are physically like physically healthier mm. um, after their mind has gone in a situation like Alzheimer's, we would see um, families doing this, uh, locking their assets up in a trust telling Medicaid because they know that they can't afford the nursing home costs 180 to $240,000 a year. They, they know that they can't afford that and they don't have enough family to like step in and, and to provide full-time home care for their mother or their grandmother. It's, it's, it's a really tough circumstance. And I, I've also seen people get divorced, have mm -hmm. to get divorced after 40 years of marriage mm -hmm. in order for one spouse to, to qualify for Medicaid. And that is just the saddest thing uh, when like, even if it's not a real divorce and it's just something that they're doing on paper to for Medicaid to or Medicare. This. What's that? Medicare or Medicaid to get on to Medicaid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just seeing those situations and the fact that because rules and laws have to be written to fit uh, uh, like you can try to account for every circumstance, but you're never going to be able to. Right. That's true. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's also like really messed up that especially older people are, are led into this, like this lie that, okay, like you have this much like savings, you have this much, um, social security and retirement yeah. that like when things go wrong, this will work out. And then, to see like to see their face like when they're like oh no you actually don't have the house like you you don't you don't have that much that so so in a trust like they that's protected so your house is the only asset that is actually protected um under under medicaid but it's not protected permanently it's protected while you're still alive so what what will happen is if if you let's say you needed medicaid mm. like medicare plus your supplemental plan or mm. hmo could not cover the full extent of care that you required in old age. Yeah, yeah. Then um, you would be for you'd be dual enrolled. You'd be enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid, um, and you would have to spend down all your assets. So any any savings, I think you were allowed to have three thousand in liquid assets, which is nothing, right? That's absolutely nothing. If you're on Medicaid, I I, I think it's I believe it's three thousand, unless those numbers have changed since I did this, uh, you know, five or six years mm -hmm. ago. Um, but it's even if it has changed, I 
don't imagine it could have changed by much. Yeah. So you have to spend down all your your you know your four hundred one k your IRA whatever all of that has to be mm. liquidated, um, and essentially spent because what else are you going to do with it? Um, I mean you can you can transfer it to your heirs uh, in advance of your passing, but there's tax implications to that as well. And um, what the one asset that would be protected that you're allowed to own that would put you in excess of the typical qualifications for Medicaid is your house. But what will happen afterwards, if the cost of your care exceeded the value of your home, the government will then own your home after your passing. You, that asset technically does not belong to you. You cannot pass your home down to your children. Um, after, and your spouse is also protected though. So like if, let's say you as a, a man was, were the primary breadwinner mm. in your home and you had had to get on Medica- Medicare, Medicaid, and uh, your, your assets were spent down, you, you, let's say your spouse survives you for several years, mm. the government would not seize your house while your spouse is still alive. But after your spouse also passes, they would own that home. And actually, the federal government owns an increasingly large amount of homes. And um, yeah. So, the, so that, that's what I was asking you is like, I've, I've actually seen like one of, one of the months of my training is palliative care which is mm-hmm. people basically like they're they're on their they're on their last stretch they're they're on their dying bed yeah and um i've had a like a couple patients or with the patients like family where the wife is like oh i have the house and so we can pay for you know we have savings like we can pay for everything and then like they they said like we can't go into this decision because we're going to lose the house and that makes no sense to me. Like, I didn't know that, like, they could, they can go after your house. So, yeah, they mean they're, they're in the long run, they will lose the house. But while they're still alive, no, they won't lose the house. Um, but yeah, they, they can. They will go after any, any, any asset that they can to recover it. If the government has to spend, like, a government run assisted living facility, for example, mm-hmm. um, probably charges somewhere around the, in the range of like $120,000 a year, right? Between one hundred and twenty dollars and $150,000 a year. Let's say you own a four hundred and fifty thousand dollars home. That's, I mean, that's that's a pretty decent home in most parts of the country. Less so today, but yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, uh, except a couple of years ago, that was uh, that was that was probably a, a, a decent home. Mm-hmm. Probably had a little bit of land with it. Um, that, but you required three years of assisted living care. The government would then say, well, that the home needs to be sold. Um, I, I believe they put it into auction. But I'm not exactly sure how that. I, I think they, probably yeah. I, they, they, I think they do it as a bulk auction of sorts. Yeah, the government will take a collection of properties that they have from this because we have an aging population. I mean, this is something yeah. we talk about. Oh yeah, on the show, this is happening to a lot of people every single day. It's mm-hmm. you know may not happen to many people you know you personally know, but around your state, around mm-hmm. uh, our country, this is happening all over the place. And um, I yeah, I, I have not really been able to find a lot of information on mm. what is happening to these homes. But I, I know the government is not just sitting on them. They're, mm. you know, they're recouping their costs, but um And that's something that yeah. like I'll say like as a as a provider, like we don't we don't deal with that because we have social workers who like thankfully we have social workers who try their best to like make everything work out for the family. But like we don't make those decisions. Like we we try our best to like get them to to a place that you know like where do you want your loved one, and and beyond that like we leave it up to the social the social worker like we say like hey like this is this is what they want so either get them home get them to a nursing home 
and you take care of the rest. And we don't, we don't really get to deal. I, I, I don't want to say like get to deal with it because it's, it's a lot, but. Well, you wouldn't have the time to, you know, assist every single patient that you have with navigating mm-hmm. this complex process. It is to a degree, people have to handle this themselves. You know, it's between them and their families. And there's, there's a severe lack of education on this yeah, reality. Yeah, that's and the this, problem is like yeah. people like don't realize like what, like what happens when my spouse is on, like on their like last month of living, like how, like how do I take care of them? Like they just think that they're taken care of. And yeah. a lot of people like don't, don't like have that. I don't have any education on, you know, what happens here from here. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're kind of, we're dealing with this in, within our own family right mm-hmm. now. This is, I mean, this is a, a, a common struggle that, mm. that people undergo and most people don't are, aren't prepared to deal with this until it actually happens to them. Mm-hmm. And then it's by that point, it's too late. And that's part of the problem is that, like you say, you might get 15 minutes with your patients, you know, once you're out of residency and you're, you're going to be practicing that is not enough time mm-hmm. to educate them on the nuances of this. Even if you were, if everyone within your profession was educated on this, it would not be enough time. And the other issue is that when people like me go in, w- would go in and speak to these people, I would run a, a one and a half to two hour appointment with these people in their home. Mm-hmm. We're having very intimate conversations about their health, about their financial situation. Um, I was also a life insurance agent, so other other things would also be discussed uh, aside from the healthcare thing. But at the end of the day, I am there trying to sell them something. Mm-hmm. I my my company was one of the few uh, insurers that was still offering long term care plans. Long term care plans was a type of insurance that, because of the extremely high claims rate on it, a lot of a ton of insurers just stopped carrying it altogether. Mm-hmm. It is a very difficult uh, insurance to carry, and even when you do carry, it's very expensive. And most people at that time just think to themselves, we'll deal with this if it happens to Mm -hmm. us. You know, they're like, they can't stomach the idea of paying $18,000, $20,000 a year in premium, Mm -hmm. uh, even if they can afford it pretty comfortably. You know, I walked into many households where they could comfortably have afforded the premiums on this. They could not afford to self-insure when it comes to actually needing that long-term care though. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, in the uh, Medicare booklet that you get when uh, when when you turn sixty four, I think when you're sixty four and a half, the government sends you a bo- uh, like a booklet on uh, Medicare with mm-hmm. a detailed information booklet. It's eighty something pages, I believe. And there's there used to be a, an entire section devoted to this rising uh, long term care problem. They have now reduced that down to one paragraph. <laughs> one paragraph of information is what the government is providing you on this. That's crazy. Yeah. So another thing that we've talked about that you told me, it was just some of the situations when you do get to interface with, and we, we've talked about how the rate of, of bureaucrats and administrators mm-hmm. and uh, various personnel within hospitals, hospitals have become a very complex beast. It's not like it was 80 mm-hmm. years ago, you know, where it's just a doctor and their patient. Um, it was just person to person. It's, it's this massive complex industry that, so you don't interface with a lot of these situations like, like we're talking about and you don't, so you don't fully know what Mm -hmm. the issue is, but you have had some situations where you advocated for something and were told no. Yeah. Well, I mean, one, one of the things about, um, paying like as a bundle is you have to, well, in a, in a hospital like setting, 
when someone gets admitted, you have to give them a diagnosis. So you have to say like they're they are admitted for pneumonia. And then you have to say like also on top of pneumonia, they have sepsis, which is like a, a severe infection. And if you if you put those diagnosis codes on on that person, you're going to get paid. More. The, the hospital will get paid more, not the doctor. We get paid a salary. So when when um, administrators get involved, it it becomes a lot more. Um, again, like numbers. So if someone meets like if someone's heart rate is elevated and someone has a fever and they get admitted for pneumonia, you have like if you don't say that they have sepsis, you get scolded. Like we we get scolded because the hospital gets paid more. So again, like admitting someone for a, a simple infection is is fine. We can treat that. But if you if you tell if you say it's a severe infection, the hospital gets paid more. And if you don't say that, then we like the the provider gets scolded. So again, it comes down to the numbers. It's like, if, if you want to put numbers on medicine, you're at a, a really high risk because all of a sudden you're saying that just because someone has an elevated heart rate and a fever and a white blood count, which can be caused from all different types of things. Like if someone's in pain, their, their heart rate's going to be elevated. They're going to have a white count. You can say, you can, you know, all those things. If, if you as a, a provider doesn't, don't put that diagnosis code on them, you'll get scolded. So that the hospital administrators who really profit from this, like want you to say, this is a more severe infection. And it's actually gotten to a point where like a lot of the older doctors who know what they're doing are in contention with the administrators because the administrators are hiring these billing uh, billing people to look at these numbers and say like why did you not like chart that why did you not why did you not document that this person was in a severe infection this is one example um and and they will they will email you and they'll scold you and they'll they'll say like hey like if you're not doing this like we're going to come down on you again down to the numbers and like the 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 doctor knows whether this is severe or not, like, why are you not putting them in the ICU? Why are you not doing this? Why are you not putting them on uh, telemetry, which is an extra cost? Like, and and that takes away the the control from the provider because once you put things on in numbers, it, it's a metric. It looks, you know, in theory it works, but it it takes away the control from a doctor going in there and saying. I know this person is severely infected versus they, they're a little bit infected. They can go home and take antibiotics. Like, yeah. And that's, that's scary to me because again, you're putting, yeah, you're just putting numbers on it. I imagine this has probably only gotten tighter in this like post pandemic era mm-hmm. that we're in because of how much losses hospitals underwent from not being able to conduct all these elective surgeries and a ton of other procedures that would typically bring in a bunch of revenue for them. Mm-hmm. So I bet, I bet there's probably, have you noticed an increase in pressure? I know you haven't, you know, been in the profession for that long, but you know, you've, you've been in the profession through the height of the pandemic and mm-hmm. into now. What is your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, oh, what, what do you mean by procedures? Because I, I, 
from what I understood from the Affordable Care Act, they took away like the uh, pain for procedures. So, what do you mean? Um, so they they took away like pay, like fee for service, which would be like you pay for you get you get charged for a procedure in the hospital. Yeah, but I'm talking the specialist. Uh, like I had read a, a number of accounts that say that. Uh, hospitals lost a ton of revenue to loss of elective surgeries. They weren't scheduling these elective surgeries mm-hmm. because oh, yeah. of the pandemic. Yeah. Right. So is, is, is that, do you think that that loss of revenue that was experienced in 2020 and in 2021 mm-hmm. is increasing this pressure to chart and code certain ways? I don't think it, I don't think it changed it much. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it was interesting that um, during the height of the pandemic, the the specialists were actually well the first people that weren't at the hospital were the administrators and then second were the specialists so i'm not talking shit on any specialist but like the cardiologist the the sur- the surgeries were all canceled because they were they were all trying to avoid they they just didn't want to deal with it which yeah. is that's fair like they've they've gone to extra schooling they've they've done extra training to get to that point um since then, I, I don't think they've compens. I don't think they've overcompensated. Yeah, I think they're still the the same that they've been. Like where, um, again, it's metrics. Like if a cardiologist takes you to the cath lab because they think you're having, a, they think you have a heart attack. If if you die on the table or if you die within thirty days, that looks bad on them. So they will avoid at any cost they will they will try to avoid taking you to a procedure to clear up your coronary arteries but again i i, I didn't train before that so i don't know like if that why would they avoid taking you to that procedure because if something happens well obviously if something happens in the or while they're doing that then that's a uh, that's a dig on them yeah um if something happens within i think it's like 30 days Mm-hmm. or it's like two weeks or four weeks after they've taken you to the cath lab, even if it's not related to what they did, it's a ding on them. Mm. So our cardio, our cardiologists will avoid taking people to the cath lab. If they're high risk, if someone's old or has other things, they will make excuses for saying, Oh, you know, that person has, um, lab work that shows that they're probably having a heart attack, but it's probably because of something else. So you're saying this is affecting the decision-making process, like this incentive to, uh, this incentive system, I should say, yeah, is yeah. affecting the decision-making process. Yeah. Do you think that we're reaching a point where the financial incentives within our healthcare system are causing more breaches in medical ethics? I think it's... I think it's taking away from providers making a decision based on what they know. Yeah. I think they're good. They're smart doctors and they're making bad decisions because of that. And again, I can't speak for before the pandemic because I've only been in this since then, but yes, Mm. I think it's taking away decision-making from the physician. Interesting. All right. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a minute. So hang tight. All right. We are back continuing our discussion on problems in the healthcare industry. Um, We spent a good amount of time talking about Medicare, Medicaid, 
the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, I think one of the important things that the Affordable Care Act did address that was by far the most popular provision of it, if you even if you ask people today, um, do you think this is important? That's the protections on a coverage for people with pre-existing conditions. Because prior to the Affordable Care Act, mm-hmm. insurers had a lifetime maximum on coverage. And some people with, you know, these are outlier cases in the most, uh, for the most part, but some people would hit that lifetime limit while they're in their forties, you know, not when they're 70 years old. Mm -hmm. And then they would just be uninsurable after that point, especially people with certain chronic diseases, people with rare genetic disorders that would, you know, gave them a higher propensity to develop certain illness. I I would imagine AIDS is another one Mm -hmm. that would probably uh, cause somebody to hit their uh, lifetime uh, cap. And uh, all all of these things uh, had been building up over the course of several decades where people just saw this inherent, this, this perceived injustice in the fact that some people just could not be covered anymore. And like, like we were just talking about um, while we were taking a break here, I, I had a client uh, once, or I, actually he was not my client, uh, but he was somebody I, I sat down with as a prospective client, um, a man with a, a rare genetic disorder that gave him a high propensity to developing various types of cancers. And uh, this man was in his uh, 40s. Uh, and, you know, had a wife and two children that were that depended on his income. And he was a former insurance agent himself. So he knew how to navigate these situations. But he had had cancer seven or eight times, I believe, by the time I'd met him. This was five, six years ago. And, you know, that that is the type of outlier case where that just in order to receive the necessary care, he needed to stay alive he would have probably exceeded those lifetime coverage limits prior mm-hmm. to the Affordable Care Act. And what is he to do? You know, is he to just say, well, I, I guess I can't receive treatment for the cancers that I know I'm going to get uh, way more frequently. I mean, cancer is something that affects, you know, all humans, but it uh, virtually, I mean, there's genetic reasons why we will essentially, even if we were able to prolong our lives past a certain point, we cannot stop cancer. And that is why cancer research is such a, you know, a hot issue. So cancer charities um, generate some of the most revenue of anything. And um, yeah, so uh, circumstances like that, uh, I, I just find it interesting that that one provision being included was one of the main reasons why the public really wanted the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, th- there's a lot of chronic diseases that, um, that people live with that are insured, um, that they go into, uh, being insured with, but like, there's also things that you can do to modify those. There's a lot of modifiable risk factors is what we call it. Absolutely. Um, and it makes it difficult to distinguish what it, like, what are you born with and what are you, what, like what are you destined to have and, and, and born with or what can you actually fix? And that's that's tough to like, you can't put that into like numbers. Yeah, so in our region, I mean, the two most common ones, you, you were having worked in rural hospital systems, mm-hmm. probably saw a lot of this, but um, diabetes and um, uh, COPD. COPD yep. Yeah, two extremely common ones that, and um, I always get these mixed up. Is it type one or type two diabetes that is... Uh, that's a product of lifestyle 
Type two. Type two. Okay, that's I. Yeah, I always I always get those mixed yeah. up. Um, so type two diabetes diabetics and people with COPD that is largely caused by lifestyle, mm-hmm. right? There's, there's things that you can either stop or things that you can uh, ameliorate the effects of mm-hmm. by making simple lifestyle changes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's the problem with like, with those things that are, um, you, you go in when you're insured with that. It, it's, it's when you have COPD, you can't fix it. It's actually ir- irreversible. Yeah. But you, well, COPD is one where you, you would have had to have made changes to your lifestyle like 15 or mm-hmm. 10 years prior to prevent yourself from getting yeah. right. Stop smoking. Yeah. And and there are genetic causes for emphysema that is similar to like COPD that you can you can be born with that someone who's never smoked a cigarette in their life can mm-hmm. be have COPD. But there there is also we we know that like if you continue smoking like that's the single biggest factor that's going to stop the progression of it. It's not going to reverse it. Yeah, it's going to stop the progression of it. Well, and there's absolutely people that still continue smoking mm-hmm. after receiving their diagnosis oh, yeah. for COPD. Yeah, right? yeah, we see people that are smoking like wh- like while they're on oxygen, they continue smoking even though <laughs> there there's a risk of explosion. Like they they yeah. can smoke a cigarette and like and and concentrated oxygen, they're going to blow up. But it's not going to it's not going to reverse their COPD. Yeah. Which I think that's the biggest problem is like, if we told them that like we can reverse your disease, your chronic disease, if you stop smoking, like maybe people would be more open to it. But like mm-hmm. the fact that we say like, oh, it's not going to get worse. It's a, it's a fallacy of loss. Like people have already gone that far that they're yeah. not going to, they don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that kind of is like a gambler's fallacy. Like mm-hmm. you say, it's like, you feel you've already lost everything that you could. So, mm-hmm. uh, so why not? Um, and uh, yeah, are, you guys really are limited in your treatment options. Not, not, not just not necessarily for these types of conditions in particular, but just as a product of Western medicine's heavy reliance on pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. as a solution rather than because like we've been talking about the limitations of time, mm-hmm. like you not having enough time to teach a patient how to live a healthy lifestyle. It, you would have to spend hours with a person in regular consultation, you know, getting up, uh, uh, getting frequent updates from them mm-hmm. and working with them, you know, kind of the way a personal trainer does. Mm-hmm. Um, you would have to work with patients on improving their diet steadily over yeah. time and on improve, you know, teaching them how to exercise and, and ensuring that they're, you know, following up with those, uh, with those plans that, that you're creating for them. Which so, is not like universal. You can't just say like, this is the best diet for you. You have to like, see how yeah, that person reacts. So absolutely. But yeah, it takes multiple like encounters and you have to see them back like every couple of weeks and see like, is this working for you? Like, let's see how your blood work looks. Let's see how your weight is doing. Well, so in that approach that you're talking about right now, sounds a little bit like a functional medicine sort of approach, yeah. right? Yeah. Can you explain a little bit what functional medicine is? <laughs> um, I've, I've struggled a lot with that. Um, I, I think functional medicine will focus a lot more on uh, like hormones and how to fix things without medication, which I, I agree with, but they, there's also room for medication. There, there, there is room for, um, 
weighing out the the risks and benefits of of using a medication to help prevent you from having a heart attack, prevent you from having uh, kidney disease, whatever it is. Like there there is room for that, and I think functional medicine is a little bit on one extreme of the spectrum. Gotcha. So you, on the one hand, there is immediately prescribe whatever you know the guidelines mm-hmm. suggest, and then on functional medicine is on the other extreme. Yeah. Of, Let's do everything we can to avoid prescribing mm-hmm. something. And I think their downfall is where they say, like, we can fix this without without medication. Like, yes, to a certain extent, extent there is room to work on hormones and, and lifestyle. But at some point, you have to say, like, this is time for us to intervene with medication. Well, and yeah, I mean, people go to some pretty extreme lengths, especially people with autoimmune disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard. Uh, yeah. Michaela Peterson, uh, Jordan Peterson's daughter, I know is like one of those people. She's on like some ridiculous carnivore diet. And yeah. she says that it is the only thing that keeps away her autoimmune disorder symptoms. Mm. And um, like, I think she only eats one type of meat. I think it's like elk or something. I, I, I don't think it's elk, but it's like, it's not, not like one of the common proteins that we, that we all eat. Yeah. Uh, I think it might be lamb actually. Um, but oh. Yeah, imagine eating <laughs> just just lamb, like nothing else, and uh, like that. That is definitely pe- there are people on the fringes of that, and you know some people say it works for them. Mm-hmm. But how are functional med- medical doctors, uh, doctors that you know practice this this extreme? How are they perceived in your industry? Um, honestly, they they get a really bad rep. Yeah, they um, and I think part of it is because they there's like such a um a controversy between the two it's 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 almost like functional medicine versus traditional western medicine and i don't think it should be like that i think there there is a balance and there is there is like a there's room for treating chronic disease with lifestyle and and taking and taking care of yourself and then there's medicine and at some point like you need you, you might need medicine but i don't think that I I think that they just like clash so much because of that. Like, what are your thoughts on like the, like what I would describe as the over prescription of uh, psychoactive drugs for mental health reasons mm. in particular, this is something that we've seen become, uh, you know, expand greatly over the last two decades, especially. Mm. And a lot of that is awareness and uh, destigmatization yeah. of mental health issues. But on, on the one hand, you know, I was told when I was young that I had ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably do. I mean, I meet all the the uh, DSM's uh, yeah, DSM know, criteria five, yeah. for that. However, rather than teaching me methods that I could employ, my you know, my parents were opposed to medication for mm-hmm. it, and I'm 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 now grateful for that because mm-hmm. I had I had to. It was a it was a hard road to get here, but I had to teach myself different methods and employ different techniques to maintain focus mm-hmm. and. Upon doing that, I was I I found that I was able to live successfully without medication. Mm-hmm. However, the immediate goal of the medical industry was to prescribe Adderall, Ritalin, Stratera, yeah. try all of these different options that caused other complications for oh, me. Yeah. And when I when I did try them, and that would pro- like I I think now retrospectively that those would not have helped me because I would probably still be reliant on those yeah. drugs to get through my day. Yeah. I always describe it as like, it's a, it's a, 
transition to get you to where you need to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people use it as a permanent fix mm-hmm. and it's not that it, it, it shouldn't be that like medication should be, well, for, especially for like, uh, depression, anxiety, uh, ADHD, like it should be something that helps you get to where you need to be. And I don't think people look at it that way. But don't you think that it also simultaneously inhibits you from it? Like it takes away any incentive you have from, like I said, like learning mm-hmm. those techniques or employing. It, it depends on where you're at in your life. Like if you're, if you're seven years old and someone puts you on, you know, uh, Adderall and Zoloft and like, of course, like you're not, you're never going to know anything different, but, mm-hmm. and that goes back to the parents. Like, yeah. What, what incentive do they have to help their child get better? Which goes back to the culture. Like that's, that's tough. Yeah. And parents have, you know, less time with their kids mm-hmm. these days. You know, you have both parents in a household typically working. Mm-hmm. Um, the- we have, we have five-year-olds that are on, antidepressants and it's not really yeah it's sad and that is concerning it is and at the same time it's like as like when you're when you're the one that's like looking at this this child and the parents and you know that that the parents are not going to take care of what they need to uh what do you do i mean yeah i mean i imagine this is a, a very similar to the what social workers experience mm-hmm. you know when they go into a household and they realize the parents have no will mm-hmm. to make this situation better. So this child is just going to be reliant on these resources from the state, essentially indefinitely until they until they become an adult. Yeah. And um, in some cases, you know, even even after. But yeah, it, it kind of breaks the incentive system. And a lot of these things, whether it's health, whether it's mental wellness, whether it's whatever it is requires a lot of work and effort and not just on the individual, but also on people with, you know, immediate support structures mm-hmm. with family, um, schools, uh, churches, you know, any, any, any member of their immediate community. Um, a lot of those institutions have been degraded or have been bureaucratized. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I really think that just inhibits people from being able to, to deal with their circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of funny because like you, we, we don't focus on, I mean, to to our, to talk crap about us. Like we, we don't, we don't focus on like, Hey, what's really going on at home? It's like, Oh, your kid's acting out. Like what can I do to calm down? And it's, it really is like, we focus on how do we patch up this problem instead of what's really going on? And we, we, we really can't like, because if you, if you say something negative about the, um, like the traditional family or, or why, like, why are you not with their parent? Like you get ostracized. Like you can't, we, we, we don't have the room to talk about that. Well, and when, when you're talking about children, you know, the parents are bringing them into you as a provider. Mm -hmm. So if you say something critical to this parent, like about something that needs to change within how they conduct their household, they're just not going to come back to you. Yeah. And so you lose any chance you have yeah. in helping that kid's situation. Mm-hmm. It's sad. And that's, that's probably one of the, like the worst things is like the, the biggest reasons I would never go into like primary care is because you're, you're taking care of a patient 
but you can't fix the like the lifestyle the family around it so how does primary care differ from your specialty family medicine well n- traditionally like family medicine would go into primary care really yeah and i actually uh, like i don't think i can do it because of um because of that's one reason is because you can't fix like the the, the family around it and this you they call it family medicine but you're taking care of one person and you can't fix like their situation they're in and number 2 is because the the insurance companies really like dictate what you what you do and how you take care of that patient. Gotcha. Yeah. Cause um, you were sharing a story with me quite recently about a patient that you had that, you know, was unable to lose weight mm-hmm. and was, uh, was pre-diabetic, I believe as well. Mm-hmm. And, no, uh, not, no. Or, yeah. Not were, even pre-diabetic. Oh, so they were not pre-diabetic and that's why you were not able to yeah. get the drug prescribed for them that you recommended mm-hmm. because the insurance company didn't want to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was um there was someone that I was I was working with that was she had a binge eating disorder mm-hmm. and she also had like anxiety, depression and again like born in like southern Ohio like you know was was raised in a family that um didn't have like healthy lifestyle choices. Mm-hmm. And so she came to me like after like multiple different like doctors and she's like yeah you know like I've I've never gotten along with these these doctors and it's like it's understandable like mm-hmm. she was she was non-compliant she didn't she didn't believe in anything that the doctors told her and um she she basically was out of options and so I you know I sat there and and gave my you know 30 minutes of whatever I could do and she came back the next time and she's like, yeah, I didn't lose weight because I can't, like, I, I don't have time. I don't have the energy. Um, I checked her for like all the, all the, like the, the thyroid, vitamin D, like everything I could check for, um, that would explain why she's, she doesn't have the motivation. And then she's like, yeah, yeah. You know, I tried the, the di- like the life, like lifestyle and diet that you told me. Um, I just can't, I don't have the energy to to cook my own food and I don't have the energy to work out. And then that makes me like continue to gain weight. And then because I, I don't have the energy, I can't, you know, it's a cycle. Mm-hmm. And so I said, okay, like, well, let's try medication. Um, you know, there's certain things that you can't do when someone has a, uh, mood disorder, like depression, anxiety. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a, there's a new medication that, um, is, FDA approved for weight loss. Yeah. But um it was originally developed for diabetes. So I said like, you know, this is a great a great medication we can use. It's 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 actually good for your heart, it's good for your kidneys. It's protected like there's no there's not really any side effects other than nausea. And she's like, "Okay, like uh, you know, I'm willing to try that." Like other than that, the next step would be bariatric surgery. Yeah. And so um, I was like, yeah, you know, it's really tough to get it approved. So I was like, let's check you for diabetes. And of course it's a, it's a number. So they, we, we checked her and she was, she was not diabetic and she, and I was like, all right, well, I'm going to still try to prescribe it for what the FDA approved it, mm-hmm. um, weight loss. And so I, I tried to prescribe it and, and they, they rejected it and they said, um, you know, Medicaid doesn't approve this for weight loss. 
we need to do a peer, like a peer to peer. And I, so I, I actually called, you know, I called the doctor and there's a doctor that works for the marketplace, um, Medicaid. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, like, you know, this lady, I have no other options. Um, she's tried the things that we've tried. Like I told her to for three months or whatever they say, and it didn't work. And so they said, well, we don't, we don't approve anything for this, this drug for weight loss only if they're diabetic. And I said, well, the next step would be bariatric surgery. And they actually said, yeah, we, we will not, we're not going to pay for this medication. And I was, I, I said, okay, well, like, are you okay with paying for a bariatric surgery? And they said, yes, we would rather pay. For the doctor that I was talking to said, yeah, like we can't approve this. Like if she has to go to bariatric surgery, then we'll do that. Wow. Yeah. And it's actually something that's like healthy for you. It's, it's, there's no, no side effects and they would not approve it. And there, there's been like multiple patients like that for me. That's crazy. And man, that is just, these things are probably all tied together in some ways as well. Like I imagine, you know, her depression is probably, is, is, often tied to self-image mm -hmm. and your sense of, you know, your sense of self-worth is, is tied to your physical appearance in some way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, an argument could be made that perhaps she might be able to handle her depression better as well if she was able to lose this weight. Oh yeah, it, it does. It, it all ties together. I mean, people that are overweight and, and don't know how to like, aren't living health, like in a healthy way, of course their mood's going to be worse. And mm -hmm. so, it's a it's a big cycle. Yeah, it affects their energy levels and like all those other things mm -hmm. that you were you were describing with this patient. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna continue paying for a daily antidepressant. We're just gonna keep pushing, you know, what whatever we're pushing, like the medications to try and patch up the issues and pay for bariatric surgery, but no one wants to like fix the issue that's actually at hand. Mm. So you mentioned one thing when you were telling that story that I wanted to continue off of, and that was um, the fact that this patient had issues trusting providers. Mm -hmm. She had had bad experiences in the past. Mm -hmm. um, I think especially um, the, this, this pandemic in particular and the environment that it's mm -hmm. created has uh, caused a lot of mistrust in the medical profession at large yeah not necessarily people's individual doctors i think most people still trust their their doctor but uh in particular a lot of these uh doctors uh like high profile doctors that have you know spoken on cable or network news and have you know given their opinions that has you know frankly a lot of them were wrong opinions or frankly uh, a lot of these cases were outright admitted lies that were told supposedly for good reasons, like when the Surgeon General first came out mm -hmm. at the start of the pandemic and said, you know, if you're, you know, people do not need to uh, be wearing like a, an N95 yeah. mask. Yeah. They said like a cloth mask will work fine. Well, then they came out a few months later and they said, Everyone actually, we, we said that because we didn't want there to be a shortage yeah. within the healthcare profession yeah. and, you know, for care providers and physicians to not be able to get those. We didn't want like a rush happening. So of course, you know, they, their claimed intention was, was good. They didn't want healthcare providers to go without, you know, much needed and scarce PPE while this global situation is happening. But at the same time, 
uh, of course, that reduce public trust. Mm-hmm. And you have uh, high profile, very political figures that are doctors like mm-hmm. uh, Tony Fauci and other um, other um, political appointees uh, of sorts that were either wrong or uh, intentionally, or, yeah, or yeah. intentionally dishonest. Yeah. And that has just reduced public trust so much mm. within the profession. How has that affected, uh, you know, how, how have you seen that uh, affect y- your, yeah. you and your peers? Um, honestly, I think most of us go by what the recommendations are. So if, you know, if the C- the CDC or the, um, the, 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 the FDA. things, uh, no, what's it called? Um, there's, there, there's a, there's a governing body that like decides like who needs to get vaccinated for certain things and like as childhood or even adults. And like most of us go by that, the U- USPSTF, the United States Pre- Preventative Task Force. Okay. So yeah. I've never even heard of that and I'm pretty involved with a lot of this healthcare policy. Yeah. So as traditional doctors, we have to go by that. And for the most part, it works. Um, and so we, we, and, and especially like schools and like colleges, like they expect that level of like whatever the USPSTF recommends, like that's what they expect. So, so we, we go by that and we say like, okay, like we have to give you that. So when it came to the pandemic, it was, it was different because on one end, like we were hearing all this from the CDC, the USPSDF, um, telling us one thing and, you know, it was true for the most part. <laughs> they, 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 they definitely did lie about a lot of things and, and that, and we were kind of like, Oh, that's weird. Like a lot of doctors kind of like just, just fell into line. Like we, um, you were just re reiterating what you were hearing, mm-hmm. even though you knew yeah. that it was probably not true or even that, though it yeah. changed from like week to week, yeah. we, we just fell into line. And because, you know, we saw the, we saw the consequences. And again, like doctors are supposed to weigh out the risk and benefits. So we kind of like looked at this and we saw, we saw the risks, we saw the negatives. And so when we saw that, we were kind of like, okay, like that has to outweigh whatever, you know, whatever else was coming. So we kind of jumped on board with that. And, and I I was guilty with that. Um, I think that as things changed, we had like you're supposed to kind of adapt to how things change. You mean when new studies were coming out and more mm-hmm. information was available yep. as this progressed? Yeah, exactly. And, and we didn't have all the we didn't have everything out there for us. And as it did, most of my colleagues or most doctors would probably still side with the CDC and whatever they said. Um the the smart doctors would probably weigh out like what are the risks and benefits like is it really worth it and i don't think a lot of people do that yeah i mean even still today regarding vaccination you have vastly different perspectives from country to country mm-hmm. you know even um if we're talking about like developed countries with advanced uh, medicine practices like europe canada and the united states 
Australia, um, mm. those countries in particular. Canada um, still, you know, Canada had pre-purchased at the start of this year enough uh, doses of uh, mRNA vaccine for their entire population to receive four boosters per year. I don't think that they've mandated four boosters per mm. year, but they have bought it. Like their population is like 30 something million. They, they bought enough uh, doses at, at the start of the year to ensure that they would have enough for four doses per person for every man, woman, and child, like in, in, in the country. Mm. And that just makes you wonder when, and when you have these countries that have much stricter and rigorous uh, regulation on this, like Australia, like Canada, like Israel, mm. and then versus uh, other countries that took a different approach, like several of the Scandinavian countries. And there is no uniformity in any of this, mm. right? Everyone is operating off of their own, governing body their own variation of the yeah. cdc um, yeah. within their countries and we've seen how this has caused consequences for us right now with this um baby formula shortage yeah because of our adherence to our own fda guidelines europe actually has higher regulatory standards for a product like baby formula than mm. the united states does. yeah yeah so there's no reason why we should not be comfortable with importing baby formula from europe yeah because yeah. knowing that they have actually higher standards and, than, and they're starting to yeah. now, yeah. They, they are now. They're now, but, yeah. But you got to ask yourself, why was this not always the case? Why weren't we? Why didn't we just? Why? Mm. Why did our governing body not do the work mm. to come to the same understanding? And again, it it comes down to like how much do you want to trust those regulations? Like for for most physicians, we were just like we should trust them a hundred percent. Like keep going, like whatever they say is right. And the same thing goes with the formula. It's like, we, we want like the highest, you know, whatever standards qualities. And at some point you have to say like, is it worth the risk? And I think that's where I, I eventually like, like stepped back and said, is it, is it worth the risk to, for the, the things that we know are side effects of this vaccine? Um, you <laughs> Um, is it worth the risks for the benefits? And yeah, um, when you had to do a great deal of personal research, like to, to come to any other conclusion than what is being provided to you by these governing bodies, mm -hmm. you have to read an immense number of studies to be able to formulate your own opinion mm -hmm. on each one of these individual, you know, situations. Mm -hmm. And it's maybe a little bit easier with something as broad in scope as a pandemic that's ongoing, that's affecting everybody globally. Yeah. But you wouldn't have the time to do this for every single individual. No, you know? no. And it, and it, and it changes and it changes for the individual and it changes for the, like the time period too. And it, and it's definitely changed for me, like where, where right now, like, you know, just because the CDC or the FDA has approved the vaccines for, you know, newborns right now, it's yeah. like, I, I, as a, physician can weigh out the risks and benefits for myself or for my family. Mm -hmm. And I can do that because I've, you know, I can read as many papers as I want, but like there still has to be that, like you have to be, able, you have to be aware of like weighing out those risks and benefits. And yeah. I don't think most people can do that. And, and, and most physicians, a lot of my colleagues can't, they just, they just go with whatever the guideline is. Mm-hmm.
And that's unfortunate. Yeah. And yeah, regulation and the regulatory environment in which things are produced and um, intellectual property are like both big factors in this. Glenn and I actually talked about uh, pharmaceuticals a little bit in our Mm -hmm. last episode um, in terms of why so much of our critical pharmaceuticals are manufactured overseas when pharmaceuticals are not expensive to produce, right? Mm. The intellectual property is what's valuable. And, but actually compounding them is very cheap um, under normal circumstances, but because of the regulatory environment that a, the same producer, like let's say just arbitrarily Abbott laboratories, if they're making a drug in the United States or in Europe, um, it, they have to adhere to much higher standards and spend much more on compliance costs Mm -hmm. than they do if they were, let's say they were to open a um, arm of their company in China, for Mm -hmm. example, and they can't own the full company in China. That's just, that's the nature of uh, doing business in China. If you set up shop in China, you cannot own uh, uh, the majority of your company. The majority of your company has to be owned uh, by a Chinese holding company or by uh, something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, I think that's how we got into the situation of so many of our pharmaceuticals being produced in China and India was because the cost of regulatory compliance was uh, much lower there, Mm -hmm. even though um, to to get them produced there and then import them to the United States was more cost effective than producing them here Mm -hmm. itself. And Puerto Rico uh, used to be a a major um, area where our pharmaceutical producers were producing. I think in part because though it's a U.S. territory, the regulatory environment was a little bit more lax yeah. or perhaps the um, strictness of uh, of the, the compliance officers uh, was a little bit more lax, but um, it's actually not that it doesn't even have to be overseas, honestly. Yeah. Like there's um, so my brother-in-law works for a uh, functional medicine clinic mm-hmm. and they, they prescribe like the, you know, the same, the same weight loss pill that I was trying to talk about or injection that I was trying to talk about that yeah. was actually, you know, good for heart, good for kidney and helps with weight loss. So it's, you know, whatever. Yeah. And they, they prescribe to a pharmacy and there's one in Arizona and there's one in Florida where they compound it themselves. So they get the raw material yeah and they add like saline to it. That's it. Or, or B12. And they can they can call it their own, and they basically can distribute it at like a fourth of the price. So this is a brand name drug, typically. Yep. Okay, and that's interesting. I didn't realize that uh, that making a simple modification to a, a I didn't know that either. Yeah. And I there must be something with like the state that yeah. like depends on that. But like of course, like they're not they're not held at the company that they're cutting out the middleman basically like yeah. they're they're not cu- they're cutting out the company that distributes it based on their formula but they have the formula and they can just distribute it just it's a, a fraction of the price yeah a lot of times though this is protected intellectual property the information is out there on mm-hmm. on on it i i literally experienced this myself um recently a, a, a medication for a, a you know cosmetic uh uh, like a largely uh, cosmetic issue that mm-hmm. I have. Um, ha- the most effective drug for me was a brand name drug mm-hmm. that was $1,700 for a 30 day supply. Um, well, my father's a pharmacist. 
So he had identified that all this company was doing to create this brand name drug was combining two Mm -hmm. generic drugs and the cost of the two generic drugs. uh, And for me to compound this myself here at home uh, is a hundred dollars instead of Mm $1,700. And that's just absurd. It is. I mean that, yeah, they've, they've found a way to like market certain things that they've mixed together. Yeah. That that's just so crazy to me that you can call that you can even have a patent on and call something like you know sell something as a brand name yeah. at a certain price point when it's literally two generic drugs mm. that are on the market and and there is there is some degree of so w- when a drug first comes out there's like a a certain amount of time that they can have the patent on it because yeah. they have to pay back like the research that costs like that's what they claim, I understand but that a lot of that research was not even paid for by them, right? A lot of it is research that's coming out of universities and they benefited from this public sector research in order to create a private drug. Yeah. But but there has to be some form of incentive for people to do that research. Sure. And that that is always the argument that's been used. And to an extent, I think the entire world benefits from the state of the U.S. drug market Mm-hmm. Because the United States spends so much money on researching and developing these drugs because there is such strong financial incentive to do so. Mm. The rest of the world eventually gets those drugs. You know, we don't hold the intellectual property rights to those indefinitely. Mm. And some countries which don't even honor our intellectual property laws will just even right after that drug is released will immediately, you know, reverse engineer it and yeah, yeah. start making it right away. Yeah. So they, there's not even a lag time necessarily. Um, especially when something natural, like a peptide or, you know, which is exactly what this weight loss drug is. It's a peptide. It's something that's so natural that you can reverse engineer it. Like you can, can you describe what a peptide is? Uh, it's like a chain of amino acids Mm -hmm. that your body like interprets almost like a hormone. I mean, it's, it's basically a hormone. So your body interprets it as, you know, what you feel when you're full or what you feel when you've had too much to eat. Interesting. Yeah. So that's basically what this drug is and it's natural. And so these pharmacies in other states have been able to reproduce it without, without taking, like without copywriting it basically. Mm. Yeah. And that's been a major point of contention with this uh, global effort to deploy the vaccines mm. um, for uh, COVID. It's, there's been this demand to produce some of these, uh, you know, protected intellectual property, uh, to be able to produce those overseas. And the, and the companies that developed these vaccines said, well, no, we don't want to do that. Of course, you know, we want to be able to profit off mm-hmm. our research. And um, yeah, that's been a major point of contention between uh, individual governing bodies within these countries, like the UK and the US, that have developed, uh, that developed the very early ones and the, the uh, more highly effective ones mm-hmm. than like the Russian or Chinese uh, <laughs> yeah. versions and uh, and the World Health Organization. The yeah. World Health Organization, you know, has a strong stance that they want all of this intellectual property to be freed up. Um, and Bill Gates, actually, who's been a major advocate of, you know, vaccination campaigns, not, not just uh, for this current pandemic, but just broadly speaking, and, and you know, his the Gates Foundation has invested heavily in malaria research and, you know, several other areas. Mm-hmm. He has actually been on the other side of this issue than you would expect him to be 
he has been on the side of protecting this intellectual property and ensuring that these companies can continue to profit off mm. these drugs rather than freeing up these patents and allowing everybody to produce. Yeah. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, and it makes you wonder like what would happen if we were in a situation where there was a, like a, a much more catastrophic pandemic in the future. Mm-hmm. Like if we were to experience something that was to the level of, you know, the bubonic plague or mm-hmm. something like that. Like, and even, I, I don't know, like modern treatment might prevent something like the bubonic plague from even being as severe as it was. Uh, I mean, just modern sanitation practices even, yeah. uh, you know, a lot has changed obviously since that time period. But I, I do wonder if like, if there was something that was far more severe than the current pandemic that we underwent, like what would, what would happen? Would there actually be a, 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 a force of change in this uh, intellectual property environment. Honestly, I think, I think this pandemic has changed that. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that like, I'm not here to like vouch for the vaccine, but I think that like, this was like the first time that they, they did spread that. Like they shared it. There was shared information. Yeah. This probably the first time between pharmaceuticals. Which really? I hate. Yeah, yeah, I, I do see what you're saying. I, I definitely think that, yeah, there was a lot of uh, an increase in that information mm-hmm. sharing. And um, if that was the only thing good that came out of it, like maybe that was it. Yeah, yeah. I wonder, I mean, it's easy to point to all the ways in which that's a good thing, but there's also probably, you know, areas where that's uh, uh, causes consequences. It was it was once we started to say like it needs to be universally like mandated. Um how so? Well, I mean, for example, like I, again, it changed yeah. the 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 variants or whatever you want to call it, like it changed. So the flu vaccine, for example, like we give that once a year, it's probably 40% effective, less than 50% and people still get it year round. Yeah. Um so all of a sudden like we think that we have out outsmarted this virus that is changing constantly like and you're going to get it every 3 months like I don't think that is realistic. Yeah. Uh, and again, risks and benefits like if someone is immunocompromised or around someone who's immunocompromised or elderly like that's a different story but mm-hmm. Like, why would we, we, we don't give the flu vaccine three times a year. Yeah. Um, and, and again, and, and so right, you're saying that like we could do that and that would, you know, have marginally marginal benefits, Yeah. but we just, we, our risk assessment says this is not necessary. Yeah. And someone who, someone who can look at a patient and say like, oh, like you're someone who probably should get this vaccine. Like, yes, like you should, but. Um, and you know, you talk to your healthcare provider for that, but like, yeah, again, like even the, even the flu, like we do it once a year. So why, like, why would we give someone a vaccine multiple times a year or a booster, like every three months when it's currently like, as of right now, June, 2022, like it's, it's just, it's as common as the common cold. So like. Why would, you know, and someone who's older, like, sure, maybe it, it's worth the risk, but you have to weigh that out. Yeah. And this is, I mean, this is something we know, 
by the data that we have, nothing, none of these, you know, vaccines, whether for the flu or for COVID, are a hundred percent effective, and they well, never, yeah, that's we, what, we will that's never what have a hundred yeah. percent effective. The vi- viruses are always changing, and that's why, and that's why I said, like the yeah. flu is the flu vaccine that we give is you're predicting it based on, um, I think we predict it based on Australia or somewhere in the UK. Mm-hmm. We predict the variant that's coming into our country from somewhere else that's already been there. And, and we try to like, we try to outsmart these viruses, but you know, you really can't like the, is usually, that because the flu typically spreads in colder seasons and Australia yeah. experiences their winter at a different time than yeah, we it's And it spreads that way, but it's usually less than 50% effective, but I mean, I still get it like every yeah. year, like whatever, like for me, it's, and depending on the person, like well, it's, for it's, you, it's yeah, worth the getting risk. the flu yeah. would be a pretty big inconvenience for you. Well, I and I'm exposed, like we're exposed yeah, exactly, to it more often. So it, yeah. again, like you have to weigh out the risks and benefits and, mm-hmm. and getting like a booster for something every three months, just as like right yeah. now with the current variant that we're seeing, like it doesn't make sense to me. So yeah, I guess you have to, you really have to weigh it out for like, what it's worth for you mm-hmm. because yeah yeah and there's no 100 percent, and that is why i think you know the advice that should have always been given to most people is to talk to your healthcare provider about mm-hmm. this you know not don't listen to what you're seeing yeah, on yeah. the news don't l- listen to you know that article mm-hmm. that was written to scare you and to drive clicks mm-hmm. you know talk to the actual people that are responsible for helping you make these decisions yeah. for yourself exactly and, um, and yeah, there's no hundred percent, like for viruses, like we can do our best to mitigate the chances of that spreading in our community, mm-hmm. but it's, there's no hundred percent viruses are always going to change. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's one thing that, and that's another thing we talked about in the last episode was just, um, how there's this duality between, um, sort of and I'm, I'm simplifying it by saying this because there's been vastly disparate responses like we talked about from western countries but china has taken their position you know their zero covid stance and they have also you know mandated their vaccine the one that they're producing mm. which all all studies indicate is far less effective than virtually every other vaccine that's available really? on the market i didn't know about that um yeah, it's 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 not a it's not a highly effective. I think the Russian vaccine may be less effective than this, but um, I haven't seen the numbers on India's vaccine. And there's there's a lot of them on the market now. Mm. I think there's like seven or so at least, right? In in the U.S. No, 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 just oh. globally, like major ones. I don't know about yeah. that. Yeah, mm. yeah, I, I I I do find it interesting that there there is just this. Uh, even in spite of knowing that you are not going to have a perfect solution, that China has opted to take this strategy, even going so far as to, and I haven't checked recently on the status of this. I think those cities have started to open back up uh, in certain capacities, but we were talking about how uh, Beijing and Shanghai, when we recorded our last episode, were still locked down, mm. um, like completely locked down. Yeah. And uh, that's crazy to think that, you know, two years after the start of this, that we were still seeing places uh, in a situation like that. Yeah. Yeah. And and I mean, I'll, I'll say this about like the, the lockdowns we were talking about this the other day. Um, it's, it's very interesting. Like 
there's again risks and benefits to to locking down and when it first happened, like we had no, we had no better option. So sure. when, when we didn't know anything better, like, of course, lock, I guess we locked down. Um, it's very interesting that the, uh, the, the CDC or, uh, whoever like makes the, the recommendations for like where a child should be at certain ages. Yeah. Um, they actually changed where a, a child should be for their their language skills. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Th- yeah. This just happened like uh, last year uh, for a kid who's a year old versus fifteen year old or fifteen months old should be able to speak a certain amount of words, and like they just changed it. Like, and they they threw it in very subtly. Like it wasn't like a big deal, but like again, like things that should be open. Like we should talk about this. Like that's okay if if that was a, a consequence, but like, like why the government doesn't want to accept that some, mm-hmm. a policy that they imposed caused a consequence yeah. like that. Yeah. And if that was what we had to do at that time, that's fine. But like, why, like, why is it not something that like we're accepting as like a medical community? Well, oh. really looks like our, our cameras have died, <laughs> but, um, we'll, uh, we'll close this up, uh, on just audio here, but, um, I want to thank you for coming and talking with us about these subjects. Um, I think uh, it would be great to have you on again uh, in the future when Glenn is also with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure he's probably got some questions he'd like to throw your way oh, as well. Oh, I would love to hear it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, this was, uh, this was great. Uh, this is your first time doing anything like this, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you were able to be here. And um uh, we are Esoteric Artifacts. This is available on YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Uh, Apple is for some reason not distributing us, but I've got to figure that out. Um, thank you for listening. And um, we will be back with Glenn uh, in the next episode because um, he's going to have his studio set up. And uh, though we're not going to be in the same room, we're hoping we can still have the same sorts of conversation. And um, yeah, so uh, please like uh, and subscribe. Uh, below and uh, on whatever platform that you're listening on. And uh, thank you.